Good morning, everyone. Uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before, my name is Gareth. I have the incredible privilege of serving on the team that pastors Common Ground Durbanville. Colin, I apologize. I did you dirty. I didn't tell you about a family news moment because I wanted to steal it for myself, uh, which is to say a warm welcome to the newest and youngest member of Common Ground Durbanville, uh, Maya Elia. I don't know if you want to do like a Lion King moment at the back. No? Okay. <laughs> so lovely to see you, Mike and Zahn. Congratulations again. Uh, and it's lovely to have your little girl with us this morning. All right, we are continuing our series, Living in Babylon, uh, after a short interlude last week to have honor and clear the brain from everyday people in East London with us. Uh, if you are new, if you've missed a couple, uh, we're exploring the reality through Peter's letter to these churches in modern-day Turkey that as we follow Jesus, we find ourselves disconnected uh, from the rest of society that doesn't follow Jesus. And we've been looking at how we interact with society in general, uh, government officials, uh, relationships between husbands and wives and one spouse as an unbeliever. Uh, and in our last text two weeks ago, Peter kind of have summed it up by saying, if you want to live a blessed life, you must live a righteous life. And that kind of leaves us in a little bit of a dilemma, because Peter's been talking about how if we will flex into the things that our society values that are godly and be exemplary at those things, we will cause those who oppose us either to be silenced or to be saved, but that's not always our experience. Sometimes as we are godly, those who oppose us will be silenced and some of them will be saved, but there's another category because we do still face opposition. We said if we wanna live a blessed life, we must live a righteous life. Sometimes we're living a righteous life and it doesn't feel like we are being blessed. And so that's the reality that Peter is going to speak to this morning. And God's word to you this morning is do not fear for Christ has overcome. Do not fear for Christ has overcome. For some of you, that is a word for the season that you are in right now. For some of you, it's a word that you need to take and treasure in your heart for the seasons that are to come. Do not fear for Christ has overcome. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Heavenly Father, we just open our hearts, our ears, our lives to you this morning. Won't you come and change our perspective on hardship and difficulty in light of your victory? Won't you come and grant us the gift of faith in the midst of difficult circumstances and an understanding of how your victory is achieved and how we walk near to you in the midst of difficulty? In Jesus' name, amen. Peter says, do not fear, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Well, what were they afraid of? They were afraid of people opposing them because they were following Jesus. They were afraid of the negative consequences that could come upon them. They could be outed as Christians to the authorities, possibly arrested, maybe tortured, maybe even killed. They have fear of good things that are being taken away from them as they try to live in a righteous way. They've had to give up their certification, their professional certifications when they left the temples with all the prostitutes and the pagan worship where their guilds would gather. And so there's a fear of their future and their economic opportunities that are not getting better because they've been righteous. They're being taken away because they're being righteous. And we face similar kinds of fears. From my toddler came home from school crying because their best friend is no longer allowed to play with them. And when I try to find out why, it's because the two moms of the best friend found out that we go to church and even though I don't know them, have never said a bad word about them, suddenly our kids are not, to, are not allowed to play together because their choices and how they think we might say something against them, even if that's never our intention. From that, all the way to, in order for me to advance into, in my company, I have to sign an affirming LGBTQ plus policy, and I've been flying under the radar on this topic, because it's not my place to judge those who aren't Christians, but I've been flying under the radar now, not only is that directorship not available to me because I can't sign that, suddenly everybody's aware of my personal beliefs on this issue. And even though I've never made it anybody else's issue, I will be judged as socially deviant. And so we have fear of the people that will oppose us. We have fear of the negative consequences they can implement against us. We have fear because sometimes it seems like we're living a righteous life Things just aren't working out for us. We see people who do things in the way of the world and it looks like they're getting ahead. And so we have fear. God's word this morning is do not fear for Christ has overcome. Do not fear for there is a blessing. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is the strategies we spoke about in chapter two where Peter says, 
Find the things that your family, your city, your company values, and if they line up with godliness, lean into those things so that you are so exemplary at them because you don't find your identity in them. You find your identity in Jesus, and so you can do them better than anybody else that when they want to accuse you of this crazy superstition of following Jesus, they also have to say, but you live an exemplary life, and they're silenced, and some of them are even saved. But even if, that's not what happens. And you should suffer for righteousness' sake. You will be blessed. An analogy to understand this. Last night, I experienced a great victory. Now, I need some group therapy, guys, because... While the rest of you were only stressing, only stressing about the box winning, I was also stressing about this major sermon analogy <laughs> that I'm bringing, going, come on, Lord, how am I gonna, how am I gonna make this analogy? <laughs> okay. Last night, we, Rob's not here, is he? No. <laughs> we won a great victory. Now, we didn't kick a ball. We didn't make a tackle. We didn't miss a tackle. We didn't come on and scrum. We didn't do any of those things, but we participated in a great victory. Now, there are coaches all around South Africa that are gonna say to their teams over the coming weeks, if you wanna experience victory like the Springboks, you've gotta do things the way that they do it that never-say-die attitude, that the guy on the bench is as good as the guy who starts. We're gonna learn and we're gonna embrace the way of victory and we will be blessed as we go about our rugby. Jesus wins the greatest victory. Jesus wins the victory to which rugby cannot compare. And just as those rugby coaches look to the Springboks for the blessings of how to win, how to achieve, how to excel at rugby, so we look to the victory of Jesus for how to excel not just at a sport, but at life itself. The big difference, of course, is that the way the Springboks win victory feeds into our culture, it feeds into our natural impulses, it's domination, it's, it's, it's raw, it's you know, all these things that pump us up. The way of Jesus' victory is the way of suffering. It's the way of self-sacrifice. It's the way of giving of oneself to others. But as surely as if you emulate, emulate the box on the rugby field, you will be blessed at rugby. So if you emulate the way of Jesus in suffering, you are blessed. As he has identified himself with you in suffering for you, as you suffer for righteousness, you're identifying yourself with him. And even when you can't pray, and even when you can't lift your voice or your hands in worship, when you feel far from God, He is so, so near to you because you are walking in the way of Jesus. You are walking in the way of blessing. Do not fear, for there is a blessing. Do not fear, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Resolve in your heart to honor. 
We honor not just in the things that we say and the words that we sing, but in the way that we live, in the decisions that we make. I don't honor my wife in word only. I honor her in the way I behave around her and other women. That's how I honor her. It's not just in words. I make a decision in my heart. I am going to honor her. Peter's saying, make a decision in your heart right now. Honor Christ the Lord is holy. Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came and gave his life for us, the Lord who is ruling and reigning as holy, as completely set apart from the way that this world operates. You listen to some of the Australian and English rugby commentators and they loathe the way that the Springboks play rugby because they're just not as good at it. And the loathing just drips off their voices. But the South African coaches are saying, no, that's the way. It's the same with us. He's set apart. It's a different way of doing life. Different way of playing rugby, but a different way of doing life. Set apart from the things of this world that we hold on to so tightly, particularly when we're going through difficulty. There's a blessing. We're to honor Christ the Lord as holy Do not fear, but be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. I think sometimes we're unrealistic about this. I think sometimes we're waiting for that moment when someone comes to us and they say to us, oh, you know, Gareth, I was was so horrible to you. But in the midst of that, you blessed me so incredibly. Won't you tell me the reason for the hope that is in you, Gareth? I mean, surely we've all experienced that, right? No? Is that, a, is that an unrealistic expectation? I think so. I think maybe a more realistic expectation, the way this question might actually present itself to you is, what kind of an idiot are you for being stingy with your body and generous with your money? Don't you know it's the other way around? You're stingy with your money, you're generous with your body. That's how you're gonna get ahead. I think it's far more likely that's the way the question poses itself. You're an idiot for what you think about power and politics and sexuality and finances. That's actually the way the question's most likely to come. That's actually a question. Why would you behave that way? What is the reason for the hope that you have? And Peter knows our human nature. Oh, it's lovely if they actually said to us, oh, you've blessed me so much. Tell me for the reason, for the hope that you have. And, and we respond with beautiful words. Do we respond with beautiful words when someone says, hey, you're an idiot for thinking like that? Why would you behave like that? No, we don't. Peter knows our human nature. He knows our response when someone speaks to us like that is not likely to be gentleness and respect and a good conscience. I was reflecting on this verse this week, how I handle it when I feel like there's opposition. You can do this exercise for yourself. For me, I handle it by interrupting people. I interrupt because maybe they're saying something that's actually pricking at me and then I get defensive and rather than allowing Jesus to vindicate me and knowing that he has me, I feel the need to defend myself or I want to look better by saying, no, no, I can just interrupt you. I already know that thing that you're going to say. I completely have that. I, I got that waxed. 
And we just get into these habits that just show the gospel needs to get deeper into our hearts because we're justifying ourselves and we're defending ourselves. That's not the way of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. We saw in chapter two. Do not fear because there is a shaming. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Until I studied this text this week, I completely misunderstood these verses. I had entirely the wrong idea about these verses. I thought these verses were about evangelism. I thought these verses are about give the reason for the hope that you have and then people might be saved. And that's true. It's just not what Peter's arguing here. He's already told us that as we tell people about Jesus and live godly lives, some will be silenced and some will be saved. And here he tells us that some will be shamed. Those who continue to oppose you, some will be shamed. This is talking about vindication. Who ultimately is shown to be in the right? Jesus said, tear down this temple, I will raise it up in three days. By his resurrection from the dead, he is vindicated as God's true prophet, shown to be in the right with what he has declared. This is talking about our vindication where when we honor with gentleness and respect and a clear conscience, we are aligning ourselves with the way of Jesus who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Ultimately, when Jesus returns and he is shown to be victorious, every eye sees him as the coming king. Oh, that was the way of victory. Oh, that was the way of life. Finding life and justice and redemption in him, not needing to generate it for myself, not needing to fight for it myself, not needing to fight for recognition and life and overcoming those who are against me, that ultimately will be shown to be the way of true life and those who oppose that will look on in shame. realizing you had the answer all along. This is not about salvation. You say it because of what Jesus has done, but this is about vindication. Where you are shown that the way you've lived your life was right all along, no matter what they said to you in the meantime, no matter what opportunities might have passed you by, no matter what hardship might have come your way, you will be vindicated and they will be shamed. Because the way of Jesus is the way of life. Do not fear, for Christ has overcome. He shifts focus now from us in our situations of suffering and difficulty to Jesus. Christ has overcome by suffering for sin. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Over and over, Peter identifies us in our suffering with Jesus in his suffering. You know, there's that reality when you talk to somebody that's going through something that is particularly difficult and hard where you can empathize with them to an extent. But if you've been through the same thing yourself, then that empathy is at a whole other level. 
what Peter wants you to realize is if you've been through suffering, if you're going through suffering, when you will go through suffering, Jesus is not empathizing from the outside. He's not empathizing from a distance with a lack of understanding. Christ also suffered. In the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your hardship, Jesus is right there with you. As you have suffered, he has suffered. But he has suffered in a way that you have not because Christ suffered once for sins. Once for sins. That speaks to the finality of what he has done on the cross. That speaks to the once and for all. The things in your past, the things in the present, the things in the future. It was all future to him when he dealt with it once and for all on the cross. A sin. Everything that would separate us from God, both before we become followers of Jesus and after we become followers of Jesus, both when we're living rock and roll and hedonistic lifestyle and when we're trying to follow God and we go through difficulty and we mess it up and we don't respond with gentleness and respect and a clear conscience. He died for it all. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one. The son of God glorified in heaven, humbling himself, coming down to earth, living in absolute perfection. Everything that the Father says, that's what I do. Not my will, but your will be done is the mantra of his life. The righteous for the unrighteous. Suffering in our place, not because we deserve it, not because he saw the potential within us if he could just save us, not because we leaned in that direction, not anything inside of us, no will, no effort, nothing in our makeup. We were his enemies, we were the unrighteous. But praise the glory of Jesus that the righteous suffers once for sins for the unrighteous, for me and for you to bring us to God. Why did the righteous suffer for the unrighteous? Because God in the overflow of his love longed to bring us to himself. Not that he lacks, but as a fountain overflows. One of my favorite, favorite theological sayings from Jonathan Edwards. He says, it speaks nothing to the deficiency of a fountain that it overflows. We wouldn't look at a fountain that is just bottling up with water and say the fact that that water just spreads everywhere and covers everything and gives life to everything. We wouldn't say there was any kind of a deficiency in that fountain. We would look at that and we would marvel at that. He says, that's what God's love is like. It just gushes forth and overflows to everybody that comes in contact with it and brings life and brings us to God and his life. Christ is overcome by dying for our sins, suffering for our sins. Christ is overcome by being resurrected from the dead. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We have to continually remind ourselves that Jesus is alive because it changes the end game. It changes our view from the 65th minute to the 82nd minute. It changes absolutely everything when you know what the outcome is. Jesus is alive. He's been resurrected from the dead. What can anybody do to me? 
How can anybody harm my future? How can anybody take anything away from me? I have been brought to God. It is secure. It is finished. It is once for all. He's risen into the heavens as we're going to see in a moment. And as he has resurrected, so I too will be resurrected. This moment right now is not the main moment. It's the moment we see most clearly because we see it with our physical eyes, but it is not the main moment. The main moment is the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that we too will be raised. Christ has overcome and he has proclaimed it. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. The great theologian Martin Luther said of these verses, I don't have a cooking clue. He said, I don't have a clue what Peter's talking about. Okay, he probably didn't say it quite like that. The translators of his German works say Martin Luther looked at this and said, I'm not quite sure what Peter is talking about here. I'm sure he actually said, I don't have a cooking clue. Okay? The theologians, they argue over who were these spirits and where did Jesus preach to them and, and what was the prison that they were in when he preached to them. And if you want to dive into all of that, you're welcome to hit the commentaries. I'm yet to tell you the good news. You don't actually need to know all the specifics to understand the point. When we read scriptures, sometimes there's things that are hard to understand. Peter accused Paul of that. Paul might say pot kettle on this verse. Sometimes there's things that are hard to understand. The key thing is if we get the main point. So exactly what these spirits were in the times of Noah, whether they're the same spirits that are opposing the people in Peter's day, whether they're the same spirits today, where the prison is. The point is Christ has proclaimed his victory over the forces that are opposed to him. He has risen from the dead and he has proclaimed his victory. It is already announced. It is already declared. The headline news is Jesus has won the victory. And that is headline news, not just to those who want to embrace it, but even to his enemies, to any who would oppose him. Any spiritual forces have already been defeated. Their defeat has been proclaimed Jesus has overcome and he reigns. He's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That has already taken place. He has already overcome. Whatever forces are in opposition to you, whatever spiritual forces might be behind those things, they have been overcome. They cannot have the last word. They cannot have the final say. They cannot hold sway over your life. Do not fear for Christ has overcome. Because of all of this, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You go, Gareth, is it God's will for me to suffer? No, the point of God's will is not linked to the suffering. The point of God's will is the doing good. And the doing good sometimes will lead to suffering. Sometimes it'll lead to silencing those who oppose you. Sometimes it'll lead to saving those who oppose you. And sometimes it will lead to suffering. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. 
we're going to get tempted to walk away from righteousness at times because it looks like the outcome is better. We're going to get tempted to compromise because we see people who do that and the outcome for them looks better. But once we gain this perspective, once we gain the perspective of Jesus' victory that is finally accomplished once and for all, bringing us back to God, and we see that the way of victory is the way Christ experienced suffering, and to follow him is to walk in his footsteps. How can we not say it's better if doing good leads to suffering that we do that? Then we compromise, then we back down, then we go another direction because that's not life. That's not the way of Jesus. That doesn't bring us closer to God. We don't experience the blessing of knowing his favor and moment by moment. And even when we don't experience that moment by moment, the certain knowledge that we're following in his footsteps. Now, one of the realities that we must just bear in mind as we think about this reality that we will be vindicated, some who oppose us will be shamed, which is a heavy, heavy thing to think about. One of the ways we can process the difficulty of that reality that some will be shamed is we play a little mental game where we go, okay, but, but that's not the end of the world because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, right? Like that's one of the ways we, we cope with the heaviness of this reality that some will be shamed. Okay, but that's okay because they, they, they're bad anyway. They're different to us. They're out there. They oppose us. And we, we just subconsciously, we get into this idea that there's these camps and there's, there's the kind of the church versus the world and, and the righteous versus the unrighteous. And that's to misunderstand the gospel and Peter won't let us do that. He says to us, reminds us of Noah and how through God's judgment of water, eight people were saved. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a judgment. In that judgment, some will be shamed for not embracing the way of Jesus. But don't think you're better off because that's not gonna be you. That was you until the moment you received grace. He talks about baptism. Once again, it's language of identification. It's this idea of baptism representing as we go down into the waters, we're identifying with Jesus' death. And as we come out of the waters, we're identifying with his new life. But Peter wants to make very clear, this is not a mechanical process. This is not a thing you do to be saved. It's not like if you're dirty, you take water and you wash the dirt off your body. It's not a mechanical process where you have contributed or added anything into your salvation. It is an identification with Jesus as an appeal to a good conscience. Why? Because your conscience and my conscience is just as bad as everybody else's. There's no us versus them. There's no self-righteousness in the gospel. When we say some will be shamed, we should say it with our hearts breaking, never a moment of triumphalism, because but by the grace of God and an appeal to a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus that the Holy Spirit has allowed me to make, I'm not in that ark. I'm not one of those eight. 
I too am washed away and put to shame. But by the grace of God, those of us who follow Jesus stand here, sit here, stand here. We have appealed to God for a good conscience and that appeal has been heard and a judgment has been rendered. Our sin taken onto him, his righteousness put onto us, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And so we're gonna take communion. And as we take communion, we can come to the communion table in various ways. We can come in repentance, we can come in sorrow, we can come in celebration. Today I want us to come in proclamation, proclaiming the victory of Jesus. As Jesus proclaimed his victory over every spiritual force that would oppose him, listen to what Paul says about communion. Speaking of communion, Paul writes, for I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To proclaim his death is to declare as a victorious shout, he won the victory for me. Yes, there's guilt and sin and, and all of that muck in our lives. That, that, that doesn't matter. Right now what matters is he won the victory, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God been made dead in the flesh, alive in the spirit, by which he went to proclaim to whatever those spiritual forces were that he's won the victory. And he's ascended into heaven where he rules and he reigns over all spiritual forces and powers and authorities. Do not fear for Christ has overcome. That is how we take communion today. The band can come up. What we're gonna do is even as we're coming up, I want us to begin singing the words of the song. Sometimes we, we kind of take communion as a moment of silence, and then we sing after. I want, even as we come, we're gonna be singing about what Jesus has done for us. Once you stand, I'm gonna pray. And then the band's gonna to start to play. And even, even as we're coming forward, we're gonna be singing. Take communion in your own time. As we sing singing together, this is a proclamation of the victory of Jesus and that we do not need to fear. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the way of Jesus. Thank you for demonstrating to us the way to follow in his footsteps. It is so hard sometimes. But we embrace the way of life through you, not life through ourselves. The way of vindication through you, not vindication from ourselves. We cannot self-generate this. Without you, there is nothing you have won the victory. And so as we take communion now, we sing and we proclaim, I do not fear for Christ has overcome.